Hello, hello, and welcome to this episode of Her Music Academia, the podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Bangura. On this podcast, I talk all about my experiences in music. I'm currently a music PhD student at the University of Michigan. I do research on Black classical music, and I also have experience as an opera singer. And on this show, I have music academics, music performers, music educators on to talk about their work in music. Today, I'm so excited to introduce my guest, Dr. Kira Gaunt. She's a professor at the University of Albany in Women's and Gender Studies, and she's also a notable Michigan alum. Go Blue! She graduated in the 90s with a PhD in ethnomusicology. In this episode, we talk all about her experiences as a singer and as a researcher. We talk about her book, The Games Black Girls Play, Learning the Ropes from Double Dutch to Hip Hop. And we talk about the book project that she's currently working on. Stay tuned for that. Without further ado, here's our conversation. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm really excited uh, to feature a series of Women for Women's History Month, uh, and the first of which is going to be Dr. Kira Gaunt. Kira, how are you? I am wonderful. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for for coming on. I'm so excited. You're actually not uh, the only Michigan alum that I'm going to have, so I'm really... Go Blue! I'm so excited uh, that I got more than one Michigan alum so that we can talk about our shared experiences there. But we also have uh, obviously shared experiences as Black women in the Academy. And so I'm just I'm really, really thrilled to be connecting with you. I am delighted that you even asked me. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> Great. So uh, let's go ahead and start off with uh, if you could inform me and our listeners just a bit about uh, your musical background. So, you know, when you started playing music, writing music, singing music, and kind of the music that was happening in your household while you were growing up, if you're from a musical family, um, where you're from, and the the, uh, the music of the place where you're from, all of that stuff. Okay. So my origin story. <laughs> um, my I grew up in the what we call the DMV, the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area. Um, I grew up in a hundred-year-old black community called Lincoln Park, which my mm-hmm. great grandfather and his brothers helped found. All of them were from the DC area, from Southeast DC or Northeast DC, and. My ancestors are nine generations here in these untied, I mean, United States, um, (laughs) uh, dating back to um, the era of uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, um, and the Du Boises, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, this clan of people came in Springfield, and I can go further back to 1855, my great-great-grandfather escaped from slavery, uh, from Portsmouth, Virginia to Springfield, Massachusetts. And um, to come back forward, my Springfield, Massachusetts family, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, um, met my maternal grandmother, likely in Boston, um, where they were clearly 
peers with Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King, because my grandmother attended New England Conservatory of Music for a short period of time before she got married. Um, and Coretta Scott King, I think, was one of her classmates. Um, so wow. my grandmother was an opera singer, uh, although my entire, like I was a knee-high, not even knee-high baby, I was the grandchild that everybody, that that was always at my grandparents' house. Uh, my mother was a single parent, and yet I never, I remember her records. She had a Dorothy Maynor album, which she mm-hmm. would play occasionally. Um, but other than that, I would not have known that she was a former trained opera singer. Um, wow. She was a mother, uh, uh, a mom, a wife, um, who was the matriarch of the family and that she grew up with some property. Um, and my grandfather was a Navy cook. Um, and the Gaunt boys had pretty hair and came from Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, so all of that to say that uh, when I was very young, I started singing. Uh, I was singing since I was two. Um, I could walk before I could, I mean, I could read before I could walk. But my earliest memories are of wanting to be a singer, um, oh. sitting between my mother's knees while she would braid my hair or comb and brush my hair and me singing a song by, um, I think it's Little Anthony in the Imperials called Going Out of My Head. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> and then um, I was a very introverted, lonely, only child. Um, and by the time I was, I, I was singing in choirs, by fifth grade, I was being selected to sing out of the choir, school choir, but I I was deathly, I had horrible stage fright for about 20 years. Um, wow. When I applied, let's see, when I graduated, I went to a community college, then moved to American University. All of my degrees are in voice uh, performance, a classical voice performance. Um, so I did my Bachelor of Arts at American University, uh, moved from there, uh, back when, to give a little tag on the affirmative action Supreme Court thing that's coming up, back when um, the GREs, the graduate record exams, had a minority student locator, which when you when you took the exam, universities could find students of color to enlist into their program. And so uh, SUNY, State University of New York, SUNY Binghamton, contacted me and offered me an opportunity to audition. So um, I went to audition there and I lost my voice during my audition. I'd never lost my voice ever before. Um, And the voice teacher, Mary Burgess, decided to take me on the basis of my audition tape. So I spent a whole first year not so I should back up. I always wanted to be Shaka Khan or Minnie Riberton and never thought anything about classical singing. Never knew. Wow. It, that's all. Come they on, Shaka Khan. Yes. <laughs> now, I don't say I'm more of a Minnie Riberton than I am a Shaka Khan, but um, I, I, I never imagined being a classical singer. But that mm. is all that was offered in 1979. If you went to school sure. for music as a singer, you had to do classical music. And so I'm at Binghamton the first year. 
in my master's program and I can't sing for more than 15 minutes. So I am, my voice teacher would meet with me every day and we would try to, we would sing for 15 minutes and then my voice would conk out. The The source wow. of my, um, the my vocal distress, if I could call it that, or <laughs> lack of voice was, um, I'm pretty sure it was trauma related on some level. Um, so the first six months I had uh, swollen vocal cords um, and Mary Burgess, who still teaches at SUNY Binghamton, or she might be retired by now, but um, she sent me to a renowned specialist in New York City. I would drive up on the weekends before I started my three years that I spent at SUNY Binghamton to see uh, opera singer and Broadway voice specialist. I cannot remember his name now, it was a German guy and would sit in the office for those people who are old enough with Tatiana Troianis and it was just a renowned opera singer on the Met stage at the time. Um, black, there was a black male dancer, I cannot remember his name, who I was in there with people who are renowned singers and performers, just trying to get my voice back in shape. And then the next six months I had, um, Hypo hypothyroiditis, my thyroid was affected. So, I mean, I was just, something was affecting my system. And so for the first year, I didn't sing in any of my classes. And this was an affirmative action placement. So I was the only black student in the program. Mm -hmm. And I went to all of my like French repertoire classes, and I could only sit and watch. I couldn't sing. Um, and the debate about affirmative action was surfacing about that black students are getting, you know, a free ride for going on this affirmative action thing. So it was really psychologically tough um, mm -hmm. to be in that situation and not sing for an entire year of my master's program. So I spent an additional year in the program and by the end, um, Mary had got me to a place where I was singing fairly well. And I applied for three schools, Eastman, Cincinnati Conservatory, and Michigan. Um, I got into two out of the three. And when I auditioned at Michigan, I think this is my, I was telling one of my students, this is my claim to fame that still was co-opted by my stage fright. I remember going into the recital hall, which is a little fancier today, but <laughs> I went into the green room and I told myself, I'm not going to get in here. So I got on my knees and prayed to my grandmother. And I said, please, who had passed. And I said, please, just let me have fun doing this because I'm not it was a renounced to me. It was like the top of the three schools that I was applying to. Eastman was big then, but I didn't. Michigan, why Michigan was better was because I had a teacher at SUNY Binghamton. Her name is Edith Boroff. She was a female um, composer who had gone to Oberlin, who was told you'll never, you know, be a composer because you're a woman um, wow. and ended up at Binghamton and started to teach in a very unusual way. She was very quirky she taught a high, like a, 
what did she call it? Hills and a Valleys course. The hills was Mozart, Beethoven, and Bach. And the valleys were their peers that nobody knew about. And I happened to mm-hmm. take the valleys course. And in that course, all of her all of her listening exams were featuring Black composers, but she didn't tell us until the very end of the semester. So every day we had class, she'd give us a listening exam and say, please do not guess who the composer is, because if you guess, you'll lose 50 points if it's wrong. So she just had us outline the features of the music, the stylistic features, the elements. Um, and then she would tell us later the names maybe of the composers, but she never revealed, you know, Chevalier, that they were Black composers until the very end of the semester. So Edith Boroff recommended I go to Michigan because wow. she knew, she said there are, I was the one of only two white professors at the Black Music Symposium that took place in 1985, her and Richard Crawford, and she thought it would be a good place for me to go. And so I knew I was going into a place, and when I got there at the audition, I saw so many Black students I'd never seen before in my life in one place, mm. and they were crowded around the windows outside the recital hall so when I made the prayer to my grandmother I turned off my censor you know I just went in we had to prepare six songs they asked me for their first one I sang it second sang they asked me for all six of my songs and I didn't notice I just kept singing and to this day the former dean Willis Patterson told me that my audition was the best one he'd ever seen but that's not what happened when I came back to my negative senses. I thought, okay, I got in very quickly, but I thought, what did I do? I don't know how, I don't know how to do what I did again. And so mm. I spent, so that's a long story to say that my first three years in the doctoral musical arts program at, at Michigan, studying first with a woman named Lorna Hayward and then changing because she threw up her hands and said, I don't know what to do with her. She actually told me this. I would never tell a student this. Um, And George Shirley took me on. So my last two years was with George Shirley. My my undergrad through my doctoral program was me being a voice major, but being a reluctant, there used to be a book called Soprano on Our Head about anxiety, being a performer. Um, Mm. I struggled so much with stage fright that I decided to give it up. Long, long story short, it's much more complicated, but, and then I was reluctant. So I switched to ethnomusicology after three years in the doctoral program. And um, the rest is pretty much history. I decided that I wanted to teach um, African-American popular, really vernacular music or at least the thing about dance or embodiment really struck me because I noticed that I hadn't had many classes that taught Black music of any kind. But when they did, the body was missing for me. Mm. The idea that um, emoting, moving, tapping your foot, dancing, you know, feeling the groove, all of those things. They could play Miles Davis or Billie Holiday. They could play... you know, in a jazz course, they might in the one class that really caught my attention that I could do this, 
they played Public Enemy. It was uh, Robert Walzer, who is a renowned musicologist, does heavy metal and jazz, married to Susan McClary, um, taught a class that Rich Crawford was on leave. And when I saw what he did, I was like, if he can teach rock music, heavy metal, why can't I teach hip hop or whatever's the latest contemporary music? And um, so, so it's a long story, but I, I discovered the piece about Black girls' musical play when I was um, when we were hosting a Mid um, Midwest chapter of the Society for Ethnomusicology at Michigan, and two little twin Black girls played a hand clapping game as I was trying to develop my dissertation topic, and I heard them in the background, and I thought, oh, it's like kind of like sampling. There's so many little pieces, snippets of other songs in the game songs. They played like eight or nine game songs in a row. And I was talking to somebody. It was the end of the conference. And I, I was like, excuse me, excuse me. I have to go down the hall because this is, I think this might be a dissertation. This this is the connection I'm looking for for hip hop. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to write about women in hip hop. And that was mm. the opening for that long story. Yes. But that's how I that's how I came here. <laughs> yes thank you so much for sharing you know it's it's truly my favorite part of the podcast just to hear how you know how people end up on the paths that they end up especially in music academia because it, it is so winding and we don't yeah. normally have you know eight-year-olds that are like I want to be a musicologist you know it like <laughs> is kind of a, a winding road in that way um okay so I do I do want to ask um a clarifying question since this is something that uh, you you skipped over just a little bit, as far as the jump from studying voice to ethnomusicology, so you were yeah. having these you know issues yeah. with your voice, and then yes, I would love to just hear a bit more yeah. about why that switch was attractive to you. You know, I've talked on the podcast about you know we have very similar backgrounds in voice and. When I was at Roosevelt University during the pandemic and everything shut down and, you know, I had um, kind of these two professors, uh, uh, Dr. David Kerr and Dr. William Hussey at Roosevelt, um, who really kind of stepped in and were able to say, you know, you write some really great papers. Would you consider you yeah. know, maybe getting a music PhD. And it was something that would not have ever occurred to me if they had not introduced it as an idea, especially because Roosevelt is a conservatory. There aren't any, you know, I, I wasn't rubbing elbows with music PhDs. So yeah. it was really helpful that, for them to kind of step in and say, okay, we can see that you're kind of flailing right now. Have you considered, you know, you, you write some good papers. And they, <laughs> but they knew it, but they thought... <laughs> They wouldn't. They wouldn't have used the word flailing. They would. They would have said, "She looks panicking. Like we're fit here. Panicking. I was panicking. <laughs> you were. So they very. <laughs> so they very helpfully stepped in and kind of, you know, suggested. You know, you seem like you have an interest in music theory. You're really good at it. You've written some papers that are really impressive. I think you could, you know, explore this avenue. So I would love to hear just more about that transition as far as yeah. if if there were, you know, you've already mentioned a class that influenced you, if there were other professors or other students that kind of, you know, opened that door for you further. I, I want to share it in, a, in an interesting way. It reminds me of how important the post-Jim Crow 
era has become for black students in predominantly white institutions, that there yeah. are professors who will look to see what you need to do to be primed towards something that could be a, an occupation or career for you, that you mm -hmm. as a person that comes from a background that's not necessarily, you know, I was the first PhD in my family, um, didn't know anything about mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah. So I had, um, there was, it's funny, there was a, uh, there were two or three white male professors, one of my masters at American University, no, one of my undergrad at American University, who seemed to plant a seed that, you know, you're really smart and you write really well. Would you ever consider kind of a thing? I think he just slyly dropped it, but, you know, I was mm. still in undergrad. And then in yeah. my masters, another person mentioned it. And then while I was at Michigan, so I did three years in the DMA. It was while I was doing my doctorate in voice that a professor, oh, Dale Monson, sat me down and he was like, you know, you know, you could have your pick of any program if you decided to do musicology. Wow. And I had never had anybody say anything like that to me, mm -hmm. but I was still clinging to the idea that I, I was a singer uh, not mm -hmm. a writer, right? Yes. Yeah. And so he said that. And then I took a course with an opera course with David Crawford. And I had decided, um, I think when I first got to Michigan, because there were so many black students, there were 30 currently enrolled black students. There were um, five of us who were on the DMA or PhD track, I think. Mm -hmm. Guy Ramsey was one of my peers, Louise Toppin, who's now on the faculty, voice right. faculty there. She, she, we yeah. were there at the same time. There were about six of us who were in grad school there, and the rest were undergrads. And almost all of them, with the exception of the students who came from Detroit, were always the only Black student in the program that they came from. Yeah. And so it was a big deal to be there. And so when I noticed that I was like, you know what, I've never been never been introduced to black studies at all. So in every class, I have any historical musicology, anything class, I'm going to write my papers about black subjects. So yeah. when I took the opera class, Professor Crawford, David Crawford said, uh, you're not going to find anything on black opera. Mm. And um, I don't know, you know how some people say you, you're you inspired by people saying that's not possible. Right. Um, and, I, and I caught a little bug for a very short time uh, because I think I was doing my French and German reading courses that year. <laughs> so mm. I was downtown at the library a lot. And I was like, well, let me just look since he thinks this, there's nothing. And when I started to look, what I ended up finding and I still have this four by six note cards of a hundred operas. I found the the John Douglas 1864 opera before most mm -hmm. people had ever heard of it. But what happened to that information? I only thought of this a couple of years ago. I had this hundred four by six cards with the details for all of these operas dating back to 1864. 
And that professor never thought to either co-publish or encourage me to publish it. Oh, wow. Not at all. And he was the expert. And that's what we call anti-Blackness. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Say that. Say that. And that's That's... the podcast. End it right there. (laughs) That is what you call anti-Blackness. Yeah. But you don't even consider that it's worthy of publication. And Mm. you claimed at the beginning of the semester, you won't find anything. Mm Mm-hmm. And like, how do you confront when a student is proving you wrong about your own expertise, yeah, right? About the knowledge never, that you think you have. You mm-hmm. never let, let it on, but I'm sure that was there, mm-hmm. right? So I had other, I had a Harvard professor who was like, you know, you're not that good. You think you're all that hot shit. You're not that good. I remember mm-hmm. crying in his office. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. <laughs> Please, I got to get answers. I don't want to be. <laughs> so uh, Dean Patterson came to my aid. He was like, you know, I think you would like Judith Becker's ethnomusicology course. I think it's like right up your alley. And so I took the course and I fell in love. And mm-hmm. I thought, wow, this this orientation that's about the meaning-making side of music and the people side and the living communities and culture side of music and not what was essentially um, dead white men and a couple of women side. And um, I was the TA for the music for non, what is it, music for non-majors, art music for Mm non-majors with Mm -hmm. um, Professor Whiting. And I remember... I was very much coming into my black consciousness then because I didn't have sure. it before. And yeah. uh, um, what's now called DACA, uh, I don't, uh, the Department of Africana, it's, it was called something else when I was there, Africana Studies there. Okay, yeah. I can't think of what it's called now. They had changed their name, but I was spending a lot of time downtown with a lot of the black students in sociology and in sure. psychology and uh, I became the president of the minority uh, what was originally the minority association of Rackham which I changed the name to students of color of Rackham because we were like we're not Mm. minorities you know like all of that rhetoric is the late 1980s into the 1992 and so um, when I took the ethnomusicology course I was like I think this is a better path for me it, yeah. And I think I'd already started to think about double, de- well, I'd started writing about uh, Public Enemy. Uh, my first publication was a, was a conference presentation at the International Association for the Study of Popular Music. And I did a transcription of the samples in Fight the Power and um, talked about some of the black, black musical aesthetics that most people don't talk about. And then right. that eventually evolved into me studying the the Black girls' musical play as, mm. a, as a phenomenon I call kinetic orality, which is a term I borrowed from Cornell West. Um, I, was, I was at Michigan in the heyday of the best and the brightest. There were 650 currently enrolled Black and Latino and Indigenous 
PhD students at music, Michigan at the time. Not, mm. not ABD, not on campus. Mm. And now when I was at the School of Music in 2019 at Michigan, and I think I saw two black students the whole, and we were there for a conference on black music. And I saw yeah. two black students in the hallway and they yep. didn't even notice that we were there. Mm. I didn't ask, what are you guys doing here? Why are all these black people who look like they're older or might be alum here? None of yeah. them came or asked about what was going on with our presence mm. there, which when I won the Hall of Fame award this past year, I made sure I made a little sip and tea. Uh, they asked me to do a little video and I was like, how can you be a program outside of Detroit? where so many yep. musicians came from. Yes. Where so yeah. many musicians in my cohort when I was there, they were from Detroit. Um, yeah. Gerald Clayton, who is a renowned jazz pianist, a uh, jazz drummer today. Um, Lydia Cleaver, not Gerald Clayton, uh, Gerald Cleaver, Lydia Cleaver, harp, just phenomenal harpist. Just so many, including, including um, Louise Toppin and Scott yeah. Piper. And just so many people came mm. out of that era. And to see that the School of Music uh, and Dance and Theater has not maintained the recruitment and retention of Black yep. students, in particular, outside of a city like Detroit. Not to mention, mm -hmm. uh, Dean Patterson is from Ann Arbor. <laughs> there are people in Ann Arbor. Michigan has a lot of work to do up on North Campus. <laughs> yes, up that's huge. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that's a great point because, you know, we share a lot of experiences as far as, you know, having to kind of carve out your own curriculum almost by prioritizing, oh, yeah. okay, I'm going to write about Black music. I'm going to make yep. sure that I'm doing this research. Like, yeah. you know, um, and we can talk about, you know, again, I'm, I'm, Coming into this program, uh, I've talked on the podcast before about how, you know, when my professors at Roosevelt kind of suggested, you know, you might want to think about this. And the more I thought about it, the more I got excited. You know, I applied to Michigan as well as a few other master's programs and just to see where I got in. And, you know, when I got into Michigan, that was it <laughs> for sure. And, you know, I was so excited to kind of leave this like really stifling, you know, oppressive world of like white opera that I was in to go into music theory. And I felt like this is going to be my time and I'm going to start exploring back music and doing all this. And they were like, okay, so you need to read this article by Phil Yule. Let's make sure you know what you're getting into, yeah, but the Society yeah. for Music Theory is 1% Black. And so like, yeah. you know, coming into this program, I only have, as you're pointing out, I have one black colleague uh who's studying ethnomusicology right now so it's literally just the two of us um and i have to do so much extra work not only to kind of build a cohort of uh of support of 
faculty and colleagues that are outside of the school of music because they're not there. So I've yeah. had to add, you know, I'm, I'm really excited that I, I've added, um, an African American studies and diaspora studies certificate to my PhD. So I take a number of oh. black studies classes as well, which is exciting, but it's like, I literally have to do all this extra work, take extra coursework on top of, you know, the coursework that I already have to take for the degree in order to make the connections to the black professors, to make, you know, um, black friends, <laughs> like, because they're not yeah. in my department. Yeah. And I actually, you know, I've listeners, you need to correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm forgetting somebody, but as far as I know, I believe I'm going to be the first music theory, you black music theory PhD. Yeah. You and your your classmate will be the second in ethnomusicology. I'm the first. Wow. You're talking about a yeah. 30. I graduated in 97. Yeah. yeah. There have been others, but they did not finish the program. One in particular mm. that I know of. I think there might be. I think she'll be the first. There was someone, yeah, there was someone who I think graduated in musicology in like yeah, musicology or 2020. Yeah. Yes, musicology, yes, but not ethnomusicology. Yeah. And that, I had to invite, okay, I, I won the best, okay, two things. Just so your <laughs> listeners us, know. Tell us. <laughs> just so the, the listeners know, I'm ringing the bell, she isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bell on my desk. I have one in my office. The one in my office says, nope, not today. <laughs> yes, on get them. For $14. Bought it on get eBay them. for $14. <laughs> um, the second is I won the top book prize from the Society for Ethnomusicology in 2006 as the graduate mm. The only black red, okay, the only person out of the ethno program who's ever won that award in the yeah. Society for Ethnomusicology. Did they invite me back? No. Did they? I had to wow. invite myself back when I was there in 2019. I invited mm. myself back. Yeah. They never even thought of, I mean, everyone knew that's in ethnomusicology that I won the prize, but I still know for a fact. One of my colleagues at Florida State used my book maybe four years ago. He was like, you know, I never read it. And it's amazing. And I'm just like, you know, so some of this is what I call the structural oppression yeah. uh, of being a small, insular and predominantly white oriented institution, even if there yeah. are allies. Mm -hmm. there's, not a lot, there's not enough talk. And not yeah. enough, you know, like in in anthropology, they annually discuss major themes together. They publish a document about what some of the best of their field. We don't, we make, we give prizes, but we don't. But we don't make those connections. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And if it is, I mean, who's going to read a book about Black girls? Why is that important? <laughs> Now everyone and it really is it. just like we're we're out here doing so much extra work 
to even prove, like you're saying, we're we're automatically engaging in this multidisciplinary work and having to do the extra work of of finding the other resources, of finding the support, of finding the funding, you know, to put together this really new and interesting and relevant scholarship that has, you know, been marginalized and underrepresented, just for it to not, <laughs> you know, be formally recognized or for you, right, to not be connected to the few Black PhDs that are here. Like, yeah. that is crazy. So yeah. it's just like, you know. To not even think, why don't we bring her back? Because we're training not only, we're, we're not only providing representation for students who look like her, we're providing representation for scholars we're training who are going to go out in the field and replicate bias yes. if they don't see the representation, yes. not of diversity, of, it, of inclusion. I'm just so tired. That's why I wrote this article about <laughs> diversity on repeat, this chapter. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, like, even at my institution right now, now it's D-E-I-S-J. And I'm like, oh, the name, the new catchword is social justice. Sure. <laughs> D-E-I-S-J. Mm -hmm. I love these. I hate these acronyms. I don't love them. <laughs> so... But, because it really but, is like, what are you saying? And how are you actually backing up those claims if you're not going to go the extra mile and highlight the scholarship? <laughs> if you're not going to be right? Yes, connecting these scholars like it's so, you know, even thinking about the fact that I'm entering and, you know, there's no there isn't a black person on the music theory faculty. I came back to Michigan in 2015 for a TEDx event undergraduates invited that that they curated for a, an mm. event that was at power center and um oh my god i did so many lovely memories about power center i was a special marketing assistant for the power center as one of my like work study jobs and uh, i was working the power center when bobby mcferrin performed in the summer they had like a summer festival oh and, wow uh, so I was like roaming around, I helped market it on campus and stuff. And uh, Bobby was like, does somebody want to come down here and sing with me? And I was like, excuse me, old woman. Get <laughs> excuse me. Pardon me. Let's pardon go. me. Excuse me. <laughs> and I get down on the stage and he goes, no, you're going to dance. I'm like, whatever you want me to do. <laughs> and I'm telling you, people, those white people in Ann Arbor, I would go all over the city and they're like, you're the one, you're the one that was dancing with. <laughs> Thinking about Bobby, Bobby McFerrin. Yes, that's me, baby. That's me. <laughs> oh, baby, I'm thinking about your face. Let's go. <laughs> oh, baby, I'm. I was like, mm -mm, I was gigging up on that stage. <laughs> <laughs> so when I came back for the TEDx event, um, I if you can find this online, I decided that I would, I, I have this thing about TED Talks generally, is that in the early days, and I've been a TED fan since 2007, if you saw Black people on stage, they were singing and dancing. They were never talking. So I decided that I would open my TED talk with, with this like, so ordinarily, um, when you see black people on stage at a TED event, they're singing and dancing. So I'd like to begin with a song. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I made a point to say that this was a stage that I used to do my auditions on. 
that I used to have horrible stage fright on. So for me, this is a triumph because I no longer have this kind of stage fright. Um, and Mr. Shirley was in the audience and I sang a little bit of, of uh, Puccini's uh, um, The Aria by Musetta's Waltz. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and then when I went ahead and did my talk, which was the story of me being in the, in the green room and praying to my grandmother and then pivoting to talk about girls online, which is my latest research about Black girls' musical, intimate bedroom musical play on YouTube and how it grooms girls for violence in some of the most empowering bedroom moments that young girls may have. They're expressing their own bodily autonomy. They might even see what they're doing as highly empowering, if not just aspirational and fun. It's mm. kind of like Black girls um, video logging <laughs> with, their, with their asses. Yeah. <laughs> let me tell you period me and we've been doing it <laughs> let me scrub I, I have this out for you <laughs> and we be doing it listeners i talk all the time people are like where can i follow you on instagram my instagram is private and you know why okay <laughs> yeah so because we be shaking okay <laughs> and you know all with all of that stuff i am a do or die michigan amazing blue girl <laughs> i i came of age on michigan's campus all my closest friends in music and outside of music many of them i'm still very closely bonded to and um almost every job that i've ever applied for somebody from michigan the michigan mafia showed up was on the committee <laughs> you know, like made me feel at home so mm. um you know, I, I really have a special place in Ann Arbor, in my yeah. heart. Well, I mean, we can, uh, since you've already begun to kind of bring up uh, your work, your books and stuff like that, we can pivot to talking about that. So your dissertation topic ended up you know, um, becoming uh, your incredible book. Um, so I'd love for the listeners to to kind of hear a bit about that before we hear about your forthcoming book. Okay. So um, the book that I wrote in 2006 um, is a revision of my dissertation topic called, the, the dissertation was titled Music, Body, and Soul. Maybe it was called The Games Got Black Girls Play, but Music, Body, and Soul was the subtext, subtitle. Mm -hmm. And um, I wrote a book about how musical Blackness is learned. And the, the quick story about this I was just sharing with one of my um, classes is that um, I had written most of my dissertation, which is based on about seven close readings of hand clapping games, cheers, and double dutch um, play and chants, the rhymes and chants yeah. that I transcribed those and I did close readings of, um, since I have it here, I should probably. Of, yes, uh, let's go. Shabuya. Shab, shab, shabuya. Roll call. 
Ule, ule, na ute, stay back. That's me. Ule, ule, na ute, stay back. That's me. Kira is my game. Kicking is my game. I got the simple, the potion, and die down the ocean. And then there's this call and response exchange between like the one man. Ooh, she thinks she bad. Baby, baby, don't give me that. Ooh, she thinks she cute, 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 too, too cute. Ooh, she thinks she fine, fine enough for M.O., fine enough for macho, fine enough for hula hoop, fine enough for all your groove. And this is, I, I did a summer program, writing program. I was a aide for a, it was a program for homeless kids in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. And so these kids, you know, I took my new little Sony camera uh, that I got in some funds from Rackham Research Grant. And I went in and I just watched how the, when the girls had the gaze were the center of the gaze of my camera. The guys, these are young kids. They were like 12 to 15. The guys had to interrupt their centering. They had to make fun, push them out of the way, try to get, try to steal focus, steal focus Mm -hmm. constantly. Or they would play the kind of games to try and one-up them when, but girls would always reclaim that gaze Mm -hmm. or that space. And so that helped me think about that girls were important progenitors of something musical, particularly musical blackness, in a way that had been hidden and overlooked. So girls are the hidden musicians and their hidden musicianship shape taste. And it has Mm -hmm. everything to do with kind of heteronormative dynamic that happens between boys and girls, where girls um, have their own little games these game songs that they play with each other, they often frame a way of thinking about who they are in the world as black girls, as black females. Uh, And they can tell narratives about themselves like like Miss Mary Mack or Miss Lucy had a baby. Some Some of the game songs spread because just like music, games or the sounds of those games cannot be contained by a border so if you go to the school where urban kids sing these songs or um, one of the game songs in my book my cousin who was raised on an air force base in denver had learned at her predominantly white school so i mean these things travel there's a network of sonic landscapes of these of these game songs um but we don't often think of girls as tastemakers. Mm. That as soon as you come out of your home, the game songs that you may hear are kind of like their own, an earliest formation of black popular music making. Yeah. So the game songs exchange ideas like, um, yes. Pesadini, Achikachi, Liberace, I love you, two shoe, shampoo. Then I began to see. Um, so I, I can't. The, the, I began to see a litany of connections between girls' game songs and male emerging male artists' songs, usually novelty mm. songs. Or um, so dating back to the 1930s all the way through 2000, I could show a pattern between either s- songs that girls may have. Um, adopted from popular songs into the play or that the game songs inspired songs that emerging artists used to taste make so that people 
would recognize something even mm-hmm. though it wasn't commercially intellectual property. It was public domain. So I say in the beginning of the book, while Black girls are tastemakers, no royalties for the song makers of Double Dutch, right? So I yep. make a case for that in the first book, that mm-hmm. they're embodied musical play. They know the textures of the music. Um, it still baffles me that there aren't, except I know why, that there aren't more Black girls who are producers and engineers. Yeah. It's not yeah. because they don't have the ear or the skill. It's not because being a dancer where you embody the rhythm section, where you played a series of games with multi-limbed polyphony, where you invented rhymes on top of them, snatched songs from here or there and put them together and crafted a piece out of nothing from every day, that these girls couldn't become engineers and producers. But those spaces are dominated, as we know from the gender inclusion Annenberg study, they're dominated and controlled and policed by men, Mm -hmm. both the musicians that we love to listen to and hear. um, And in many cases, women have had to comply with this because I was listening to um, one of my favorite artists, Santi Gold, talk about that she can't remember in her 20-year career in the music business. She cannot remember but one time working with a female engineer. Mm. So that the first book, The Games Black Girls Play, Learning the Ropes from Double Dutch to Hip Hop. And it looks mm. at that gender dynamic. My second book is kind of like the digital version, the digital games that Black girls play, but I'm calling it PLAYED, all caps, how music on YouTube grooms violence against Black girls online. Mm. And uh, in this case, I'm still telling a kind of um, longitudinal orientation, like um, twerking through the ages. So using a data set of 650 bedroom twerking videos and about 90 songs that the girls, about a thousand girls in those videos chose to dance to among those 90 songs, only uh, less than 10 of them are by female artists. So they're wow. choosing music by male artists to dance in their bedrooms, which might not seem odd given that girls in a heteronormative society are told that they should identify with you know, the artists that are predominantly male that come out of the music industry or are emerging artists on YouTube as music creators, mm. bedroom music creators. But it is striking that because girls who are twerking in their bedrooms and not speaking at all, just dancing along with things that tell them what they should do with their body. So they're also right. they're also lip dubbing, which in a cognitive neuroscience world, you're training your brain when you mouth the words, even when you read them. It's a great way to add nuance to a learning process by mouthing what you read when you read it. So if you're singing along, but not really phonating, but, mm-hmm. you know, and dancing and articulating all of these things that are sexploitative, sexist and misogyn- misogynist about yeah. women, girls, telling girls to do this with your body. And the my favorite latest version, I'm, I'm being ironic, facetious, I should say, is Throat Baby, 
by a an artist named BR Cash. I can't. I don't know what the stylization, how you say it, mm. but it's uh, it's another song about women sucking dick. <laughs> and I'm like, this would not be a problem if YouTube wasn't a general audience platform for me. Kids under 13 are exposed to sexualization too early in life. There is a cognitive adverse experience that happens socially, emotionally for children, psychologically for children. They should not be exposed to sexualization or sexualizing content at an early age. And mm. Black are inadvertently exposed to it because they're the tastemakers for the music. Their dance mm. draws attention to people to listen to those streams on YouTube. And why I say it's across online generally is that YouTube is the hub for sharing across all platforms. YouTube mm. began as a dating site in 2005. I really recently learned there was another phase of their iterations trying to, as entrepreneurs trying to make it sell. And then uh, they sold their platform on the back of black female, a, a particular black woman's body, Janet Jackson at the 2004 Super Bowl, the so-called yep. nipple controversy. That video was not available. And when they figured out they had a sharing capacity for the platform, the first thing they did was make sure that that video was available so that they could generate attention just the way little black girls generate attention for little Wayne songs, for Juicy J songs, for BR Cash songs. And the latest one from the Grammys just a week ago, I got received, is an artist named David. He spells it like DVD and then the letter, the number four is the A and it's mm. So it's D, the letter four, and VD for David. Mm -hmm. And the song is called Romantic Homicide. And it was a viral hit on TikTok. And he was nominated and appeared in the For Your Consideration Billboard version that comes out the Grammy preview issue before Grammys so that voters can decide what they're going to vote for at the Grammys. I'm like, this hidden, obvious kind of musical misogynoir is what I'm trying to expose with the book about, played all caps, how music on YouTube grooms violence against Black girls online. It goes to um, Genius, where if you haven't noticed, one of the things about an anthropologist or an ethnographer is that we're trying to make what's hidden obvious or yep. what is what is um so familiar to you a yep. little strange so that you understand how culture is seeding a little message behind the context of what you take for granted and yep. in the context of all of this this music the girls are spending the most time immersed in as sound mm -hmm. they're also shaping their behavior the way that they will, the, the way that they will not talk, not say anything when things untoward that have been normalized, sexualization, adultification is happening. And a friend of mine 
I told them, you know, they call this in feminist, um, in one of the phases of feminism, patriarchal bargains. And this Jamaican friend of mine is a father of a, he's raising his daughter, co-parenting his, his 11 year old daughter, now 14. And he said, so what's the bargain? I don't get it. What's the bargain? He, I, he, I said, it's a patriarchal bargain. He goes, what's the bargain? And for the first time in my life, I'd read this theoretical, I was like, there is no bargain. <laughs> We're being mm. sold. There, there is no mm. bargain. It's not a bargain. What's the bargain? You get to be on YouTube. <laughs> What's yeah, the bargain? Like what is what is in it for us? What are we getting? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So like Being the ways in which it's normalized. Yes. Well, I mean, so this is so great. This this point of uncovering what is already there, but what is not obvious and what is yeah. hidden because of, you know, the systems that we live under. So it obviously feels normal to us, but kind of exposing, you know, how perverse this behavior is. Now, I, you know, first of all, it's such a huge point that you brought up about the the sexualization and adultification of black girls in particular, right? Which obviously happens to us a lot earlier than our white counterparts. And then also thinking about the platform of YouTube and how there's like the the incredibly flimsy uh, safety measures that they have in place yeah. to protect children yeah. from this type of content. All you yeah. have to do is be a child and lie and say that you're yep. over 13, right? And then you I can don't even call have it, access to everything. I don't even call it lying. Yeah. If they leave the gate open. Yep. If they don't have an age gate, mm -hmm. knowing that children are, there, are on their platform to blame the victims is by yeah. saying they're lying. No, yeah. no, you left the gate open mm -hmm. and you let predators in as well and you know it. And you mm -hmm. let just perverts who don't know any better leave negative comments like, leave neg negative comments like, why don't you take off more of your clothes in the next video? All yeah. the typical grooming aspects, textbook aspects, treating mm. girls like adults, one of the signs of grooming, treating girls with enticing things, saying, oh, I'm 31 and I know I'm a little old, but you're the one for me. Mm. Comments leaving phone numbers below their videos. Sure. So the, so the thing- You're that, not like the other girls your age. Right. And girls who seek attention because they haven't gotten the right attention when they're younger. And then the rest of the audience thinks this is normal behavior to do towards them. Mm -hmm. The thing that's missing is that a lot of these girls and women won't really recognize the trap it is. And it's pun intended. Trap music is a trap when it comes to women. It is a sexist trap. It's sexploitative. It invites women to use their bodies to entice attention on an attention in an attention economy that is driven by what what bleeds, what's grotesque, what's embarrassing. And if there yeah. is one thing that is the source of a lot of that, what's humorous, is that twerking is the butt of lots of internet jokes, lots. And as sure. long as white girls are doing it. It's cool. This is my mm. favorite quote. My favorite quote from Nicki Minaj. 
See, when a white girl do a black thing, that's cool. People are like, oh, that's cool. But when a black girl do a black thing, that ain't popping. Mm. I love it when she says <laughs> When she said that, I was like, amen, sister. You, you, mm. You're right on point. Yeah. So yeah. the book is the book is is about um, a hard subject for a lot of people. But I say, you know, while this may be triggering, it may leave you feeling less alone. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think the conversation, you know, because I can already kind of foresee the response to this episode about like, OK, well, what what then would be sexually empowering or liberating for women if it's not this music and i I'm, again we're really trying to ask questions of power questions of control right questions of like who who is benefiting off of their bodies yeah. right and so like you know the fact that these these girls can participate in these dances and you know even even a larger conversation about women in hip hop and in rap and in in this genre of music, um, kind of the paradox of desirability as far as like, sure, you can yeah. be a rich bitch in, you know, hip hop and you can be a Meg the Stallion. You could be a, you know, the new girl is Ice Spice. Ice Spice, I love you. Come on the show. You know, it could you can. <laughs> but ultimately, you as the woman are never going to benefit as much as the system is profiting off of you. And so we yeah. have to really right consider those larger dynamics about like well what if when when people are pointing to a Nicki Minaj or pointing to a Cardi B pointing to a right these these women who Again. you know yeah. are kind of leading the the this um sexually empowered movement um you know being sex positive with uh with the young black girls in your life is very different from this type of sexploitation. And so seeing it's not like, you know, this binary as far as like we have to hide young girls from their own bodies, teach them to fear yeah. their own bodies, teach them that they can't uh, be honest with the adults in their life about what's going on in their body, adults that they trust, right, and have relationships with about what's going on with their bodies. So a body positive and sex positive relationship, um, you know, fostering that in young girls is very different from this type of behavior. So I think yeah. like I'm already anticipating the response being like, well, so then should we just shield girls from sexuality or should we just, yeah, no. and it's like, it's not that black and white, you know, there's, there's it's, a lot of gray area in between. Yeah. For me, it's that we're still treating children writ large as second-class citizens. We don't yes. empower them to understand both the complexity, I mean, we have some really amazing young people. Naomi Wadler is a great example, this young Black girl when she was 11 who gave the gun violence speech that is a tour de force of mm -hmm. the, the senior TED speaker uses her talk as an example of a great speech, like a Martin Luther King's. This little Black girl, and she's always like, you know, people come up to me and treat me like, you know, aren't you sweet, little girl? You know, like she's a whole human being, not the peonage yes. of childhood that we tend to create. Um, so I think for, there's two things I want to say to what you said about, so so the music that they're dancing to, that's sexploitative yeah. or 
appropriate for their age, why aren't we encouraging these girls who are tastemakers, who understand the texture of the music because they outline it with their bodies? Why aren't we saying, use your garage band and make us and make your own music instead of those lyrics? Rewrite the lyrics mm. for and then make a texture. You can get a little app with beats on it. Make your own music. Mm. Dance to your own music. Just like you would be like, write your own book. The book you want to see. Tell the story you want to tell. Period. Why aren't we encouraging little girls to become beat makers? Mm. And not because it's something special. But it is special to do the whole thing. I like the multiplicity of, you know, the hip hop era. Graffiti artists were were B-boys. B-boys were DJs. DJs were MCs. That's that's a very common African orientation to musicking. That I can play the bell in the ensemble and the drum. And I can play the small um kitty part, like I know all of the parts. Well, girls are outlining that when they twerk or when they mm. whine or when they do bounce or when they do juke in in Chicago. They're telling you how the music sounds and what the structures are by changing the orientation of the kinetic orality. So why aren't we making the bridge for them? Mm. Because the institutional supports aren't set up for it. Yes. Yeah. Both in K through 12 and through yes. high school, out into college, we're not making a space for them to say, hey, like someone said to us, you know, you could write. And I'm like, you know, mm. you, could compose. you could compose. Yeah. You could be because there are no women in the space. You could cut through the line. You would have a, you'd have an open space. Now, it'll be hard to be the first but not if you're not a, not if you're alone. <laughs> mm. Not if you're alone. If a bunch of people are doing something, whole different ball game. Just like these mm. kids in the climate change space changes yeah. the game. Kids in the gun violence space changes the game, and you yeah. set the mark for the next generation. So I'll say that, you know, I began this research on International Women's Day when I saw, pardon, Nicki Minaj dancing in a freaks montana french montana video called freaks where she had a beautiful jacket on but her breasts were pretty much fully expo exposed Ex they were exposed okay. only covered with little star pasties that were the same color as her flesh so uh, she really looked like she was nude to me mm -hmm. and it was 2013 which is the year of twerking and i thought what are little boys and girls going to think about this? It, I mean, I was married briefly and had a 13-year-old stepdaughter. And she was so beside herself the first time she saw something that was really sexually oriented, should have been PG-13. Um, my former husband thought, oh, she can watch this. And she was so squeamish and uncomfortable and so lately I've been mm. thinking about what I call this interoceptive, this part of our body and it's our fear signal and threat system called interoception. It's also the one that helps us determine whether we need to go to the bathroom or if we're feeling upset. It's the way that our organs talk to each other because 
your palms are sweaty and your heart is racing, you tell yourself, oh, I'm scared or I'm excited. So if the first time I encounter something like that, I'm scared, that's a natural response. But if I'm repeatedly exposed to it and nothing happens, then I will turn something that should be threatening into something normal. Like I should just sing along with lyrics that tell me what I should do to please men. And then flip it around to sexually empowering talk where I'm talking about dominating men. That's not sexual empowerment to me. Mm. That's pornographic, heteronormative, toxic battling between the sexes. It's... Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you can't hold me down, fuck you. Fuck nigger free. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's no, yeah. That's yeah. cute for entertainment, but it's right. not how it happens in every day. And every day women and girls are suffering at the hands of violence from family members in their homes during COVID. Yeah. Uh, from siblings, from little kids who can yeah. dominate them. Because they don't really have power over how to set boundaries with who they are and their their bodies. And that's a different game than Mm -hmm. learning how to dance and hoping nobody will touch you at the club. (laughs) You know, Mm, Megan and and Cardi, they have a squad. They have have people to protect them. But look what happened to Megan. Look what happened to Megan. That's harm. That's trauma and that's long-term consequences for when she wants to have kids, if she's going to have kids, it's going to affect her system. And we just don't think about that, that kind of Mm. chronic exposure to no one listening to you, no one trusting you, no one believing you, people spreading rumors that you're not, that you're a man. And then people sexualizing you. That was that was something that angered me so much about that trial as people then turning the attention to, well, how can people take her seriously when she's wearing that? Right. Yeah. Um, So, again, that whole like, what was she wearing debate as far as suddenly Megan's on trial because her character is being called into question as far as does she deserve to be assaulted? Right. So, um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's self-silencing. It's self-silencing. So for somebody who's so Mm. open as a performer, so provocative, so it is a character. It's not who she is. Megan the Stallion is her job. (laughs) And she's not the same person everywhere. Um, we, We really don't see the correlation between voice, agency, and this difference, which is a kind of empowered misogyny that we're calling mm. empowerment for a lot of people. Mm, yes, this is exactly this is exactly it because if we're teaching women that the opposite of misogyny or how they should rebel against misogyny is to also dream of dominance, right? To yes. also dream of becoming the oppressor. To get right? that like, bag to make mm-hmm. you give me the bag. To, mm. <laughs> yes, I deserve yeah. the bag. I'm entitled. You know, or it's like it's payback or something. I'm like, mm-hmm, that's no different. Mm-hmm. That's two sides of the same coin. Right. And it just it just doesn't pull us further 
to liberation, right? First of all, it focuses on the individual rather than the collective. It's about what can I get? How can me and mine be safe? Versus what do we need to do for all women, for the women that have more privilege than me and the women that are more marginalized than me? How do we, right, as a collective, dream of liberation, right, for for gender justice? Um, But if we're too busy caught in, in... like the, the the furthest we can dream is, well, maybe I can get my justice. Maybe I can get my bag. Maybe I can dominate over my man or whatever. And I'm going to get mine versus focusing on that collective and just focusing on that, that individual sense of dominance. You know, it's 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 not getting us anywhere. Uh, for sure. it's, it's time for a collective of female MCs to make an album. And, and I know for Halle Berry's um, wonderful, wonderful film, Bruised, on Netflix, just amazing that she first directed. Um, she did a soundtrack, but it doesn't get traction. But what happens is we have to build that effort. Rome was not built in a day, as they say. It has mm. to be like, okay, that's the first one. What, what didn't go right with it? Was the timing? Was the, we got to do that again. Because what people are repeatedly exposed to, they repeatedly do. They repeatedly get, you know, used to. They start to like. But if they only hear it once in a while, then it just doesn't last. Mm. They don't see women making their own music. They don't hear women dancing to the voices of women, not just for the gaze of men. Mm. I'm looking at a poster I have on my wall, which is by a uh, an artist that I absolutely love, who is originally from Brooklyn, but lives in Baltimore. And he has a company called Exit the Apple. He's this multifaceted musician, multimedia artist. And he says, the these five things, um, say it with your work, find your tribe, there is power in numbers, honor every feeling that passes through you. It's okay to tap out and catch your breath and find a reason to smile every day. And this conversation made me smile. And I had a long day. And I <laughs> so, so appreciate this. When I saw you at SEM, I was like, and you told me you were at Michigan. I was like, yes. <laughs> In music theory, come on. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, all of us who passed through, whether we finished or not, is special mm-hmm. and and so I'm I'm glad we're part of a little clan of people from uh, the School of Music at Michigan and beyond and all of the places that we're connected to. So, thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. Oh my gosh, thank you. I I am truly this show has been so revolutionary for me as far as connecting with people at other universities that I wouldn't otherwise connect mm-hmm. with because as you mentioned, Michigan's not really pulling that weight, doing that work to to help us network, and especially considering there are so few, you know, Black scholars in music academia, like, it's, it's, I just understood from the jump, like, if I don't do this work to build my own cohort and my own network and my own support system, I'm going to feel so isolated being a first and being the first yeah, you know, yeah, black yeah. black you know uh music theory grad from michigan i'm you know expected to graduate in 2026 
Like, that's crazy that I'm right, that I'm going to be the first. And so I just yeah. I'm, I'm so honored to to be connected to you and to other, you know, scholars in the field who have just really shown so much support for me and my work and, and just keep me in the space. So thank you. Yeah, you know, you're doing something that I, I, I try to encourage my students to think about ways they can build a career, a career identity, while they're still in school instead of waiting or trying to, and what you've done is by interviewing all of these people and engaging and connecting with these people that you admire or that you know or meet, you have a ready-made community when you come out. So, I mean, you said it, but I just want to re-emphasize that that you can't beat that with a bat, <laughs> as the old expression <laughs> said. You're developing a, a home, a landing for yourself of a whole slew mm-hmm. of people, not only the people you interview, but the people who will listen to the podcast, the people who will find it many years later. And, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that you can probably turn all of this into a book later. So do your thing. Go on, do your thing, do your we'll thing, see. switch. Go on, do your thing, thing, do your, your thing, thing switch. <laughs> And that is going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much to Dr. Kier Gaunt for being on the show. It was truly so fun to record. I hope you heard the joy in our conversation. And I'm just so thankful that she's a part of my community now. I'm so thankful for Black women who are doing the work that I want to be doing. She quite literally paved the way for me to be at Michigan. (laughs) So I'm just eternally grateful. If you have any questions, comments, feedback for me, anything about the show that you want to share with me, if you want to be a guest on the show yourself to talk about what you do in music, please send me an email, hermusicacademia at gmail.com. Go to my website, fill out the contact form there, hermusicacademia.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.